You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thursday, January the 19th. It is still cold here in TWM, though perhaps not quite as chilly as it was yesterday. Has the damage already been done as far as this weekend's meetings are concerned in Britain? Asker is really struggling, as Chris Stickles told you yesterday. Four o'clock inspection this afternoon, the track's still frozen. Uh, Haydock, well, Kirkland Tellwright gave it an even money shot at the beginning of yesterday's programme. I think that's a big drifter now because they've had an unexpected snow dump, which is causing that to be very doubtful indeed. And Taunton looks much more hopeful, really. They're raceable at the moment. Precautionary inspection, 8 o'clock Saturday morning. So it may be that Taunton is the only British fixture on turf to go ahead this Saturday. Everything on turf this afternoon is off. Uh, Jonathan Harding, Racing Post writer, joins me now. Jonathan, lots to get through today. But first of all, if Asker is off as we anticipate, what chances do you think or should the BHA sanction a rescheduling of the Clarence House chase? It, it's not a guarantee by any stretch of the imagination. No, you're right. It's not a guarantee. Um, there is a precedent for moving the Clarence House chase to Cheltenham. I believe that's happened twice. And... You know, we'd all like to see that happen. We'd like to see an Ergelman take on Edward Stone, but they take each of the cases on their merits and they will not do something that affects the pattern. Uh, an Ergelman has the option of the Dublin Racing Festival. Edward Stone has the option of the game spirit coming up. Whether they would both commit to running if it was run at Cheltenham next week, I don't know. It would be nice if it was opened up to entries because we've obviously only got three in there at the moment and that might encourage a few more to come and have a go if it was at Cheltenham. But it's just a, it's a terrible situation, isn't it, with these big races being lost and who would be a jumps trainer after the similar situation a month ago? It's it's very tricky. I hope that they will consider rearranging it, but it's certainly far from guaranteed. Yeah, and the, and given that the mood music at the moment about not putting on uncompetitive races with small fields, if Willie Mullins, for example, said, well, I don't really fancy making it a week later with an Ergerman, and Alan King says, well, you know, I could still go to the game spirit with Edward Stone, and of course, an Ergerman's got the option of the of the Dublin chase at the Dublin Racing Festival, they may just think this is a waste of time, and it's a waste of money as well. No, you're right. You're right. And we don't want to see, we wouldn't want to see one horse run round in a no contest situation at Cheltenham. You'd like to think a few more would come out of the woodwork and, and know what we know about those horses and think, well, let's have a crack at it. But whether it will be the same calibre of horses, you don't know. And when you're campaigning these, these top, top talents, you have a plan in mind. There isn't a great deal of wiggle room in the pattern. So losing races like this is a massive blow to their preparations. I always err on the side, and I'm sure the BHA also errs on the side of if we can save it and put on competitive racing, we will, and we'll tack it onto cards. But this one, I think, given the given the uh, absence of a healthy field, they might, like you say, just consign it. But remains to be seen. And of course, Ascot might be on, but I'm really, an inspection on Thursday afternoon for Saturday does not bode well at all. 
Right. If you were with me yesterday, you'll have heard Lee and I talking about Danny Brock, who was found guilty on Tuesday of corrupt practices in relation to racing after the judicial panel had found he'd ridden to ensure defeat for the benefit of associates who'd bet against his mounts. Um, he can expect a big ban and that'll be read down, we think, this afternoon. As I said yesterday, Jonathan, it'll be into double figure years if the BHA get what they want, I'd say. Uh, you've been following this case quite closely. What was the most striking aspect of it? level of detail and the amount of races that this related to. I mean, it was described as an extraordinary conspiracy by Louis Weston. This was over a sustained period of time. It was described as a spider's web of different individuals who were benefiting from these horses being ridden in a certain way. The, the money involved was in the hundreds of thousands at times. It was just an exceptional case really and one that i think will have ramifications for potentially how inside information and the passing of inside information is viewed within the sport clearly we all know and we've discussed this before that if you pass on inside information for financial reward then that is a against the rules and it is in particularly sharp focus when inside information is used when a horse is is not going to win and the, the jockey then affects that eventuality or is alleged to have affected that eventuality however i i noticed your piece the day before yesterday where when trying to build a case against one of um the associates here sean mcbride son of trainer charlie mcbride the the barrister louis weston on behalf of the the bha brought up a a win bet a thousand pound each way win bet on a horse and it it then takes you into a slightly grayer area when is it wrong to to say that the horse is going to win? Effectively, just to give a tip, is it only when information is passed for reward? Firstly, taking this uh, case in itself, that shows or was used by uh, Louis Weston to demonstrate a pattern of behaviour. Mm -hmm. So if it's in conjunction with also encouraging people to lay and also having a direct line to a jockey and influencing how they ride in a race, then obviously it should be treated as part of that bigger picture and part of that larger conspiracy. But I think you're right. There is an awful lot of grey area between passing on inside information and uh, receiving a material reward, which is obviously large against the rules in lay or backing horses, and innocently giving a tip. And I think that is something that I know, having you know, having looked at it today and over the past few weeks, there is a lot of information out there. But I think it could do with perhaps clarifying even further what is permissible from yards. And that relationship between yards and gambling itself, I think, is, is up for debate. We know owners and trainers will back their own horses. Laying their own horses would be a, a huge no-no, but they do back their own horses. But... In, in light of other sports, is that something that we should also be questioning in the interest of transparency? <laughs> I don't know. It would put a lot of people off the sport. So it's a difficult one. It's I, a minefield. I think you, you, you're then going to hemorrhage so many owners and and possibly quite a few trainers out of the game. But it certainly would it would reshape the way the way the sport operates and and maybe it would be it would be seen in a better light from the outside though whether it would whether it would operate as as effectively as it stands is a is a moot point it would be incredibly difficult like you say but i think it's worth 
just highlighting the, the minefield of inside information. I know there's a lot of education on this from the BHA to people working in yards and associated with yards, but I think erring on the side of caution is probably the way to go. This is perhaps a cautionary tale of how just, you know, it can escalate and it can become far more serious. Right. News came through yesterday that the Gambling Commission had fined Tony Bet, a bookmaker you may or may not have heard of, at £442,750, ouch, over unfair terms and conditions uh, on the operator's website, including that they're asking for ID documents for withdrawals, all withdrawals, big withdrawals, uh, even if uh, checks had been performed earlier in the business relationship. The regulator said that, um, I quote, this placed friction in front of withdrawals, but not deposits. What might this mean for the gambling industry as a whole? Has the Gambling Commission done something different or unusual here in taking uh, these measures? Neil Channing joins me now, professional punter and gambling industry analyst. Neil, is this a significant moment? First of all, the thing that struck me immediately was, who the hell are Tony bet? Lots of people are talking about this, 442,000. And I think it's reasonable for people to say, well, this is no great surprise. This stuff's been going on for ages with all kinds of firms. Is it one of those cases? And sometimes we get it in racing as well, don't we, where people think that the, the big trainers are uh, immune to being done for non-triers and stuff like that, and they always go after the little guy. Uh, and I think there's been a, a cynical suggestion around the industry that that's what's happened here. Um, the thing is, is that going to be how it pans out, or is it going to be that this is the opening of the floodgates? Because every single firm is doing this thing. So 2019, the Gambling Commission uh, put out an edict to say that you, you can't ask people for information on withdrawal that as a way of stopping the withdrawal that you could have reasonably asked for earlier on. So punters that say, and, and quite rightly say, well, this is not fair, you know, I've won a couple of grand and now they won't give me my money because I've got to send them all kinds of information, P60 bank statements, all that kind of thing. Uh, the bookmakers are not supposed to do that and they have been doing that. The Gambling Commission ten generally tend to deny that that's going on, but everybody that is involved in gambling knows that that's happening. And if they are going to come after the companies for that and issue fines in this kind of region, it's massive. But, of course, the problem is the Gambling Commission are so uh, secretive about what they're doing and they're so inconsistent in the way they deal with people, it may not be as significant as that. The other thing is, of course, that wasn't the only thing that Tony Bet did. It's not like they're getting fined 442000 just for that. There was a, a, a litany of things that they were getting wrong. Um, so possibly it won't be as significant as people think. But if they do come after all the various companies uh, that have been uh, getting involved in this practice, well, it, it would be massive, and, and uh, I think, you know, punters quite rightly would say, well, you put out this edict years ago. I can't remember anyone ever getting done for it before. Maybe there are isolated cases, but it is a thing that's definitely happening on a day-to-day -day basis and has done for years. OK, yesterday, the latest economic impact study of the British thoroughbred breeding industry was published. It outlines the key opportunities and challenges for the sector and seeks to provide 
a blueprint for future progress. It was commissioned by the Thoroughbred Breeders Association from the international consultancy PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and builds on the reports that they published in 2014 and 2018. It was co-funded by the, the Levy Board and the Racing Foundation. The Deputy Chairman of the Thoroughbred Breeders Association is Philip Newton and joins me now. Uh, Philip, what was the most striking aspect of this report for you? What hit you between the eyes straight away? Um, I think uh, um, that, that, that it's good news and bad news that uh, we still retain um, a world-class industry that from a broodmare band um, that is not as big as some of our competitors, we still produce um, a very high proportion of uh, high-class horses. But on, on the other hand, um, uh, there are some concerning trends um, in the industry that continue um, profitability um, in the industry is a, is a real worry that the, the headlines of book one um, mask the realities of uh, what the majority of breeders are suffering and that that's been shown in an exodus from the industry by breeders since 2009 we've lost 1604 breeders and that's 34 percent of the base 1338 of those um, a small one and two mare owners, the small breeders that produce 30% of the foal crop. Um, and that um, if we keep losing breeders, then um, um, and our, our mare population decreases as it has as well, uh, then there's going to be an e- inevitable impact on uh, the British racing programme. To, to what extent was the Great British Bonus Scheme um, devised to stem the flow of smaller breeders out of the sport? Well, GVB um, uh, has been an, an overnight success um, 10 years in the making. That The first um, uh, economic impact study that uh, was commissioned in 2014 highlighted uh, some, if not all, of the issues that we're facing um, again now and that we realised that we've got to do something. But um, I have an expression, the art of the possible, and that um, everybody knows that funding is difficult um, in, in the racing industry. And as a consequence, the TBA started with some smaller projects, um, uh, the Elite Mares Scheme, um, to encourage um, the retention of high-quality national hunt mares to breed from. Then MOPS, which was again um, a mare owner's premium scheme for um, national hunt. And both of these were really good testing grounds, and they showed quite clearly that progress could be made and that we're seeing with the national hunt births that, that, that they are increasing albeit slowly but steadily. Um, It was then in 2018 that we were able to um, start formulating our ideas for the Great British Bonus um, uh, to encourage the breeding, buying, racing and retention. And retention is a really important word of British bred fillies because the gold seam that runs through uh, the British breeding industry is the broodmare band. If we nurture this, if we develop this, if we retain this, we've got a real chance um, of retaining our place as the world leader in British blood, in bloodstock. Uh, the PwC report details exactly the success of British bred horses overseas, as well as what they're doing at home and in Ireland and, and closer to, to home in Europe. And it's great to fly the flag as, as the world's great exporter, but how concerned are you that it if it accelerates, continues to accelerate at, at this scale, because the incentives to keep them here aren't that great, that actually, in a generation, we'll have nothing to export. I think the most concerning thing, and I'll come back to this, and that it's a bit of a soapbox for me, that 
what we are seeing is is is, is fillies at yearling and foal stage now um, um, being targets for exports. We don't want that. We can't have that because we've got to retain um, our filly and mare stock. And that what GBB does, both for over flat and uh, national hunt, is provide an incentive to retain and race um, those fillies. And that what we hope is that those fillies when they're successful that they make a case to their owners that they should be returned to the breeding band either in their ownership or someone from um, this country is going to buy them is there is there a sufficient case within this report that that what is generated by the british bloodstock industry is is sufficient to to change legislation and to give horse farmers effectively any kind of government assistance well um, this study is is the most comprehensive ever um we did one in 2014 and 2018 both in their own ways were landmarks but this one takes it to another another level analytical tools have advanced significantly since the last study and this time we've analyzed over seven and a half million data points with 125 comprehensive surveys and 10 in-depth interviews industry interviews with real movers and shakers in the industry weatherys have been fantastic all the way through that they've opened their books up to pwc and that um, we've recovered and considered data that um has never um been um considered before i think so that what we've made is a really reliable data and fact base that we can present that um, to government but i think everybody recognizes the difficulties that the country's in um economically currently and and that um, there are lots of people that are going to be knocking on the treasury door what we've got to do um is that we've got to spend the money that we've got wiser gbp is a great example of that because it was um instituted with three and a half million pound pound of funding from the levy board and a million pound of um, self-help from the industry in in registration fee particularly to change behavior and attitude towards fillies and it's done it because prior to gbb there was a 30 percent gap between the value of a cult and the value of a filly now we've cut that down um to 16 percent that's remarkable in two and a half years and what i think it says is that Every penny piece that we have in the racing industry that we earn, that we retain, that we reinvest, we've got to look at a proper return for it. Just blanket bombing isn't going to do it for us. We need to self-help before we think that any government intervention um, is possible or probable. Philip Newton there, the Deputy Chairman of the Thoroughbred Breeders Association, and echoing Philip's thoughts there in relation to the work done by our friends at Weatherby's who power our bloodstock segment every week for their unfettered access to all the data that has enabled this economic impact study. It's not all doom and gloom, Jonathan, for sure, because there's a lot that, that Britain does well here, but it's just a question of making sure the the trend of decline is stemmed and whether the Great British Bonus is, is, is going to be enough to, to do that. And as, as Philip Newton said, ensure retention of young fillies and mares to ensure that these these bloodlines are kept here it's it's one thing to it's one thing to be a great supplier a great exporter but you've got to make sure you've got something to export no you're absolutely right and it, it, it is encouraging i'm just from a personal point of view it's nice to see 
an analytical approach like this being taken because it's quite often um, we identify problems anecdotally, but this categorically shows that, yes, Britain is in a strong position um, in terms of the export of equine talent. It still produces fantastic horses, but like you say, it is concerning to see the smaller and and sort of or the sort of lower and middle market being badly affected. And I think the GBB scheme is actually a fantastic example of an intervention that is working and, and must continue to work. I mean, it's encouraging to see that the the average sale prices for colts and fillies is is narrowed probably as a result of this scheme. And like you say, retaining those fillies and mares is so important if you're going to be an export nation and equally if you're going to maintain the domestic racing product as well so certainly work to do but um i would agree with you that it's not all doom and gloom and actually highlighting the problem is is a key part of fixing it well i'm always very happy to check in with our friends in new zealand and it's been very remiss of me really not to concentrate more on harness racing during the time that i've been doing this podcast but here we are 658 episodes in and i get to new zealand i get to cambridge and i get to the sport of harness racing and to to luck chin because i read about luck's story on michael Guerin's website the other day well worth checking out uh, Lux just passed his 80th birthday this week uh, still has ambitions to drive a, a group one winner in his in his homeland and he's just he's just come off his his horse in the in the 827 to, to speak to me now um luck good, good morning good evening to you in in new zealand how did you get on this evening yes um i had three in the one race and the other two got first and quinn allen got first and second and i think i ran about fifth or sixth or something yeah uh, just just for those who aren't familiar i mean this is is such a labor of, of love for you you've been doing it since the since the early 1980s but it's not. It's not your day job. You're a, a very, very busy man. Yes, I'm. A, I'm an anaesthetist, a specialist anaesthetist. Actually trained in the UK. I was five years in Birmingham, the Midlands Training Scheme. Got a fellowship from the Royal College of London and fellowship from the Royal College of Ireland. See, so I, I, I've got some um, links to the UK. And so, where did the where did the driving come in? Where did the horses come in? Where did the driving come in? Well, I came back and I've always been interested in horses and uh, I had a couple of horses before I left to go to UK to do my um, postgraduate studies and on the way back I thought, well, you know, I'll keep my interest in horses. So I start to breed a few and then I realised that, oh gosh, you know, you spend all the time training and breaking your horses and breeding them and, and then suddenly, you know, somebody else gets on the cart and for three minutes they have all the fun. So I thought, well, why not get my own license? So I, I got my own um, probationary license first and then got my open driver's license about all oh, 25, 30 years ago. And since then I've bred, trained, broken them and, and, um, and driven all my own horses since. I know people really don't like to make a big fuss of, of their age, but there aren't that many people into their ninth decade still, still working, let alone as a, a practicing anaesthetist and having a pretty physical, um, it's more than a side hustle, a pretty physical second job uh, along the way. What is it that really kind of motivates you and keeps you going, Luck? Uh, well, I love the game. And honestly, you know, every time you win a race, you, you get a buzz. I don't know how many races you win, you get a buzz. I can remember driving my first winner 
1984, I drove my first winner and uh, I got Busby partied all night. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and I still and I still get a buzz out of it driving a winner now, even though I think I've driven about 150, 60 winners now, yeah. So, and uh, the good thing about it is that, you know, I've never brought a horse in my life, okay? Or every horse I've owned, trained and driven, I've bred myself. So what's the normal daily routine for you then? How do you divide up your time? I get up at five in the morning, I go and do my horses, and then I head to the hospital, booms about nine o'clock, and then, uh, yeah, and then work the day, and then on the way home, call into the stables and feed the horses, and then home. It is pretty straightforward. It isn't too hard, really. It's just it's a long day. (laughs) And you've got an ambition now to to ride a, a, a Group 1 winner. Oh, I thought I might have had one. I had a couple of nice um, two-year-olds or last year, that's three-year-olds now, and a really nice trotter, okay? But unfortunately, um, they got injured, and so I'm still breathing from young ones now, and uh, I've got a not bad little two-year-old at present. I'm just broken in and working. Uh, so mm, it's going to be hard because there's not many group one races okay so and at my age at 80 well gee, you know time's running out well yeah but clearly clearly it might be running out for some people but clearly it's not running out, out for you like you you're showing no signs of uh, of diminishing in any way uh, how long do you think you can you can kick on for well as long as, as, long as the, 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 the harness racing um, authorities allow me to, to have my driver's licence. Uh, I have to have a full medical every year, ECG, blood test, test, the whole lot, you know, just to make sure that I tick all the boxes. And um, so far, I, I find, I mean, uh, I don't have any systemic problems. My problems have been sort of broken bones and I've had two hip replacements, a knee replacement. I've had my like, spinal fusion done. I've had a fractured pelvis twice. On falls and the horses, but apart from skeletal problems, you know, I don't have any systemic problems, and the systemic problems is going to kill you, isn't it? Well, You're not going to die of broken bones. I saw there was a race today. The the, the Luck Chin Bionic Man Stakes was it? I, I, I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of my birthday two days ago, 80th birthday, they named the race yeah the Bionic Luck Chin Handicap Trot. Yeah, because yeah, because of all the metal in my body from my injuries. <laughs> Well, it, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure and an honour to, ha- to have you on the, on the podcast this morning. Luck, thanks so much for talking to me. Not at all, it's a pleasure. Well, there you go. Luck Chin, 80 years old. I, I mean, I, I've never met this man in person, obviously, Jonathan, but just to, just to listen to him, he sounds about 30. It, I'd it love makes... to meet him. He is an amazing guy. <laughs> Pops into the hospital, does his stuff. Consultant anaesthetist comes back, drives these harness racing horses. It, it it looks pretty lethal as well when you get close up to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to have a certain uh, mindset to be silly enough to get into one of those things, let alone do it at eighty years old. I mean, it's it's inspiring, but it's also a little bit like, what's my excuse? because there have been times where I've thought I could go for a run today, but it's cold outside, so I'm just not going to. And now he, he is at 80 years old, engaging in an incredibly dangerous sport alongside a job. I mean, he's, I'd love to meet him, actually, and go for a drink. He seems like a really cool guy. All right. Well, you're well familiar now with the concept of online auctions. There is one tomorrow opening at Goffs. That's Friday the 20th of January. And the key news is that McSweeney is being sold 
as a stallion prospect. Why is this significant? Well, it's significant because he's a classic winner. Also, because he was owned, bred, raced by Jim Bolger, who himself over the years has stood many stallions, some with a, a significant degree of success. And Jim joins me now. Jim, it might first be worth asking, why Why are you moving McSweeney on? It's going to be a bit of a wrench, isn't it? Uh, yes, it will be, yeah. It's, it's uh, always difficult to move them, whether they're good, bad or indifferent. But... Uh, uh, needs most, so uh, he's for sale. I only have the, the couple of stallions that I use for my own mares, and uh, uh, it gives me the raw material to train. But uh, it, it's it's not my line of business. I leave that to the experts. This horse, though, is a, a product very much of of what you've been nurturing over the years. Just just tell me a little bit about his his pedigree and family history and where perhaps you, you bought and, and acquired the, the mare that produced this line? Uh, I think it was the, the third or fourth dab I bought her in America and she was quite old at the time so I left her there and uh, I got one fall, I think it was only the one fall from her and uh, that was Shimsa and she won a few races as far as before she got injured uh, on the track she got struck into but uh, uh, I kept her as a brood mare and I think she's the second dam of, of uh, Max Wien he's a perfect specimen you couldn't find fault with him and uh, his action is out of this world uh, he's a gorgeous horse and he has size, scope and temperament um, so you know he's, he's a perfect race horse I know you, you, you never mind telling this story, but you, you'd been saving the name for a little while. For our, our international audience, just, just tell us why you'd been saving the name and, and, and how soon it became apparent that this, this horse would, would get it. Well, Terence McSweeney is a famous Irish patriot, uh, died on hunger strike in Brixton. Uh, we won't go into the reasons he was picked up, but uh, it should never have happened anyway and uh, he should have had a full life. But uh, in any case, uh, he did much for Ireland, so uh, I thought that if I had a promising horse, uh, that I should use the name. And uh, this fellow was showing us plenty at the back end, you know, just after he was broken and riding. Uh, As I said earlier, he's the perfect specimen. And uh, we knew after he had done a few counters that uh, we were probably uh, on the right track to finding a good one. So uh, I had no hesitation then in putting the name on him. But uh, I doubt if I'll be trying it again because, uh, you know, you need an awful lot of luck to get it right. But uh, in that case, anyway, we had luck on our side. And now we have luck on our side again from you. Well... (laughs) Fingers crossed! I can bring you. I can bring you some tomorrow. What sort of, what sort of stallion masters do you think he's going to appeal to? Well, he can fit anywhere because uh, he he just about he handles soft ground very well. So he's obviously going to appeal to uh, uh, the jumps people as well. Uh, and as I said earlier, he's a Group One winner over a mile as a two-year-old. And he, he's uh, a classic winner at a mile as a three-year-old. So you couldn't ask for much more. Uh, and he proved also that uh, 
uh, he stayed a mile and a quarter very well and he possibly uh, just about got the mile and a half as well when fought in the, in the derby. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think, I think he'll, he'll appeal to uh, uh, both codes and I could see him standing as a, uh, a very upmarket uh, dual purpose. Are you going to send him some mares? Uh, I will if he stays in Ireland, definitely. Uh, and if so, I'll be sending um, 10 or 12. I, I'd love to use. It's Thursday, and on every if we can, but if not occasional Thursdays during the course of the year, during 2023, we're going to hook up with our friends at Racing Welfare uh, to tell you a little bit about what they are doing across the sport and very very important mass participation event this year which is going to be a big fundraising driver for racing welfare is the three peaks challenge it's taking place on the 8th of july joe white is the southern events manager for racing welfare and joins me now joe tell me a little bit more um, what you're really trying to achieve here um good morning Nick. yeah so basically what we're trying to do with the three peaks challenge event is we are hoping that we can get as many sign-ups as possible. It's quite a broad spectrum event in in that um, it's got a broad appeal. All you need to take part is a decent pair of walking boots, some thick socks and a rucksack. Um, You know, you don't need any expensive kit. You just need to have a good, strong pair of legs. You want to put in a bit of training beforehand. I'm sure it will help. But we're really hoping that we can um, open this up to everyone, Uh, not just, you know, mums, dads, brothers, sisters, um, your cousins, your auntie, your uncle, whoever, get signed up. It's only £35 per person, so it's quite a minimal um, sign-up fee, and we're just asking for a £300 minimum donation. Um, So we're really hoping that with this type of event, we can attract as many people as possible. And and what a better place to spend a weekend in July, but in the Yorkshire Dales. So, um, yeah, that's, that's basically it in a nutshell. That's what we're hoping for. I mean, the three peaks challenge sounds formidable, but it's it's quite manageable, isn't it? It, it I, I don't want to say fun for all the family, but you know, it, 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 is, <laughs> it mean, is it is manageable I, even for somebody like me. I'd suggest. I, do you know what, Nick? I I mean, I love walking. I've got a lot of dogs. I spend a lot of time outdoors with the horses and the dogs, and um, but I can't say I've done many hill climbs. So I'm actually entered into this event and I, I'm a bit, you know, nervous about climbing some of these peaks. I think there's over 1,500 metres of ascent in total across the three peaks. But I have spoken to a colleague of mine who has done one of the peaks previously and he's promised me that it's very manageable. Um, you know, you can set a fairly steady pace. We're not asking anybody to run it. By all means, if you want to run it, then that's absolutely fine. Um, but it's just a you know, a steady pace across the three peaks. Um, it's, I think we've got 12 hours we're allowing people to do it in. The average is about seven or eight hours at a, at a steady pace. So it's more than achievable to even the slower walkers in the groups. Um, so it's certainly something that everybody can get stuck in with. And how do we get involved? So we are launching the event today. All details will be across our social media and uh, racingwelfare.co.uk. There'll be a link on there for people to click on and sign up. You can also go on there and find out all the more information about, you know, what's required in in terms of the kit that I mentioned. Um, And we're also going to be securing some accommodation for those 
uh, non-local um, entrants, I suppose, that want to maybe make it into a weekend away and come up on the Friday, stay overnight and stay on the Saturday as well and enjoy the Yorkshire Dales for a little bit longer. So all the details will be in the registration pack. They can also email me, jwhite at racingwelfare.co.uk. I'm happy to give them as much information as they like. But let's just hope that everybody fancies a good old walk across some fantastic countryside in July. Hopefully the weather will be kind to us as well. Joe, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Nick. Take care. On the road to Riyadh, the world's richest horse race fast approaching and last year's Saudi Cup winner Emblem Road ran last Friday. I wonder how he got on, the man to ask, is Martin Kelly, our regular Riyadh correspondent. He's with me now. Martin, was it a successful comeback for the defending champ? It was successful and visually very impressive as well. His first run back on dirt since his Saudi Cup win last year. Drawn in stall four, he was actually slow away. Um, he could afford to be. He was £23 clear over the field. But uh, his jockey, the Panamanian Alexis Marina, took him towards the outside of the field. He circumnavigated his 19 rivals and hands and heels won by four lengths. Alexis, um, on board this horse, he actually rode his stablemates making miracles to be fourth to him in the Saudi Cup last year. But he was uh, back on board Emblem Road. He was back with a, a really, really tidy win. He's going to go straight now to the Saudi Cup. And I know you were talking earlier in the week about uh, Tabor coming across for, for Bob Baffert and he's in the running for the Eclipse Awards. It's going to be fascinating to see uh, on February 25th how those international form lines tie together. Yeah, don't forget Emblem Road beat Country Grammar in the race last year, so it was good form. Wiggy Ramos will be back to ride Emblem Road in the big race? I think Alexis will be, uh, will be maintaining that partnership. Wiggy kind of retired mid midway through the summer, went yeah. back to... Uh, Panama. He's back riding there again, but not contracted to the same people. So okay. and Alexis Marina would be on board. All right. Also on Friday, we had the restaged Prince Khaled Abdullah Cup. Uh, was that a significant race? It was. It went the way of Bahrain. Fauzi Nas sent across Kada, who was a winner at Glorious Goodwood a couple of seasons back for Mark Johnson. The first ride in Saudi for Alberto Sanna. Eagles flight. Well, he tried to make all in that race, but he was overhauled in the closing stages by Kada. The first two pulling nearly five lengths clear. And he's going to remain in Saudi Arabia to run next weekend in the custodian of the two holy mosques. And we saw plenty of others over the weekend, Nick, who will qualify for that race as well. Electability. He was the winner of race nine on Friday, which was a domestic group two. He'd won an allowance race for Chad Brown over in America, sold to King Stable for $330,000 at a horses in training sale back in the summer. He's a son of Quality Road, the sire of Emblem Road. And then Quality Road as a stallion had a, a great weekend. He also had a winner in one of the big races on Saturday. This was Scotland Yard who won the custodian. Uh, well, he's, he's going to be on track for the custodian of the two holy mosques. He won uh, one of the big races there, the King Faisal Cup, formerly trained by Steve Asmussen over in America. Alexis Marino on board once again in the colours of Prince Saud bin Salman Abdulaziz, who owns Emblem Roads. So Scotland Yard, Electability and Cadder all heading for the custodian of the two holy mosques. But I don't know, are you a, a big football fan? N not massively, no, but I'll, no. I'll try my best. OK, well, I'm not either, but even I've heard of... Carlo Ancelotti, uh, the coach of Real Madrid, he was in town in Saudi Arabia last week uh, for the Super Cup. Real Madrid were beaten 3-1 by Barcelona in the final of that over the weekend. But Carlo actually went racing last Thursday. There were pictures of him there 
on the Jockey Club of Saudi Arabia, Arabia Twitter feed. And he's now got a horse in training in Saudi Arabia, a horse called Honour and Pleasure. It was winner at Linkfield last April when trained in France by the Bottis. And he's joined the same connections of Emblem Road and Scotland Yard as well. And he's a well-bred horse, a half-brother to the Arc Second Sea of Class. So Carlo Ancelotti now owning horses in Saudi Arabia. And just one of the horse to mention, Nick, from the weekend, uh, Derivo won the big race on Saturday, the King's South Cup. Uh, James Dole was back in town. He, of course, won a domestic group one there last month. And Derivo, drawn out in stall 16, the doiler made a beeline for the inside rail. He got a dream run round. He got all the splits and went on to win by two lengths. And he's another one. He's going to be heading to the custodian of the two holy mosques a week on Saturday. Earlier this week, the first four jockeys were announced, Martin, for the International Jockeys Challenge, which takes place the eve of the Saudi Cup. No surprise, Frankie Dettori heading the list. Who's joining him? Caitlin Jones, we've got the Hong Kong champion Joe Moreira and Chantel Sutherland as well. Four races taking place on the Friday. They have seven international female riders, five international male riders and two local men as well. Frankie's going to be making his 11th appearance, 11th seasonal appearance in Saudi. He's had six winners there. He was in the Jockeys Challenge unsuccessfully two years ago. Uh, Caitlin Jones as well. She was the winner of the International Jockeys Challenge last year. Joe Marrera, never been to Saudi before, the four times Hong Kong champion, a bit like Frankie. He's on his farewell tour. He's going to be appearing. And uh, Chantel Sutherland, the Canadian, who's had 1,200 winners to her name. She is the uh, uh, John and Caitlin as one of the seven international female riders on the Friday. All right. Thanks to Martin. Thanks to all my guests today. Uh, I have got Jonathan Harding still with me, and he's got some advice for you for this afternoon. I certainly do. So my selection today is Bearing Bob in the 2.30 at Wolverhampton. He's been really consistent in two starts for Tony Carroll, one at Kempton, went very close at Southall last time. It was just a pound up for that. So I think he's going to be uh, a very key player in this race on the all-weather. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Thursday, January the 19th. I'll be back to do it again tomorrow when Lydia Hislop will be my guest. Bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.